Okay, Anna, I want to play some music for you. Check this out. Okay. I woke up to the morning sky first. All of that music is the sound of Texas, believe it or not. And it's heard and interpreted through the ears of our guest this week, musician producer Adrian Quesada. And I love that he's, you know, producer first because he's really not a producer in the way we would traditionally think about them. In the music industry today, Felix, I mean, most producers we've spoken with, they're kind of on this journey of of helping other people shape their visions, right? But Adrian has a very clear vision for his projects. I've been a fan of his almost since when we started this show years ago and been able to watch him progress and be able to expand out his vision of what his sound is. And I think he's at a point now where it's very, very clear, it's very distinct, and it's a lot of fun to listen to. I couldn't agree more. And honestly... Getting to pick his brain about his projects is one of the most fun things I think I've done in a while, Felix. So I'm going to throw it to the interview with, dare I call him, Professor Adrian Quesada. I kind of imagine it like cooking on, you know, if I had a huge stove with like 12 burners and I'm cooking all the time on all of them and you're just simmering a bunch of stuff. And then when something kind of starts to look tasty and like it's coming to into focus a little bit more, it's like I turn everything down and then I just go and get on that and then start to really, really dig in there and finish it. So it helps me to have a concept, which is why during the pandemic was so easy to finish the Bolettos album and Jaguar Sound was because I knew exactly what I wanted to do right there. As soon as I started working on it, I'm like, oh, wow, I can see this actually being finished. So that helps because I have a million ideas floating around in every direction that, you know, may take forever to come together. I want to go back for a second to to the Black Pumas and, and the successes that you had there. Like, what did that teach you about the music business? And then what did that teach you about yourself? Because there was a Grammy nomination. Didn't you guys open for the Rolling Stones at one point? We did last year, yeah. Yeah. So, like, what did, what did those successes teach you about the business and about yourself? A couple of things. One was the importance of a song. And when I say a song, I mean something that people can sing, something that people can relate to lyrics and things. I'm, I'm not uh, a vocalist. I'm not a lyricist. I'm not really a really vocal person. And I don't write lyrics. Wrote some bad poetry in high school, but never really attempted to. But And honestly, when I listen to music, a lot of times it takes me a few times to actually get into the lyrics. I actually really dig the sonic landscapes of music. That's what I personally like. That's what I bring to to the studio. That's just where my ears go. And I realized, you know, with Pumas is that we were able to connect on, on some of these songs that, you know, these lyrics that Eric had written that, that were, you know, some of them were over 10 years old, but people were relating to them and putting their own meaning to it. So I realized the importance of a good song that people could connect to. I think that that was something that, you know, I've always been making, you know, instrumental music or fringe this and that, but to have something that really connects with people worldwide is, is really powerful to see. With all my baby 
interesting to me that you say what you say about the lyrics because I'm in Mexico City right now and I've been talking to a lot of different producers here and without fail almost every single one says like no matter how producery of a producer you are and how in the weeds with the sounds you are like lyrics are so 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 essential and crucial and even the way that you mix a song like lyrics are gonna be more upfront than they are let's say when you mix in the U.S. or whatever it might be and so do you feel as though the way that you approach producing the way that you approach lyrics specifically and the way that you hear music do you think that's specifically related to where you are I mean putting yourself in Austin specifically in Texas kind of being close to the border but being in the U.S. do you think that's impacted how you approach or see lyrics and music Uh, for me I think another thing that because of where I grew up I grew up on the border uh, on in Laredo Texas I grew up speaking two languages so I grew up you know, all day, every day, not just on the Mexican side, on the American side, you know, you can order food in English and they'll respond in Spanish. And I just grew up speaking like that. So there wasn't ever a lot of language barriers for me and that there is that exists for a lot of other people. So, but lyrically, I don't know. I think a lot of it was that I was an only child, a bit of an introvert and never had a, a voice myself. So I just never really looked for somebody else's voice you know and um, it's something I've appreciated a lot more and and have definitely shifted to understanding that you know I mean I also love instrumental music I love jazz and I love soundtracks and I love all kinds of music that doesn't have vocals but you know in terms of sort of like quote-unquote mainstream uh, music listeners I think a lot of people are looking for words and and melody and and that's something that's super important and I think should I've learned a lot as a producer from that, you know, realizing that I used to treat the voice more like an instrument, more like it was a part of a, an ensemble. And now, I'm, you know, when I do work with somebody who has a voice, I, st- I still feel like I'm starting to understand, you know, how important the voice is. You know, even mixing the Bolettos album, I remember how so many of the vocalists were like, turn my vocals up, turn my vocals up. And I, you know, I had to like <laughs> keep doing that little by little, little by little. And now, you know, I definitely see the importance of that. I love that you bring up the way that living on the border kind of influenced obviously linguistically you were living in two different worlds you also have pursued a lot of different types of worlds musically i mean how did that influence the choices you've made in terms of the diversity of sounds that you've played with i started to dj a little bit more and i have a lot of respect for the art of djing but i i hold some of my favorite djs up there with my favorite guitar players so I like that they find the common ground between one song and the next. And I, I think growing up and listening to, you know, American music, I was obsessed with, you know, hip hop and rock and roll and whatever was on MTV and whatnot. But also hearing in the background, always hearing like cumbias and rancheras and things like that. I started to hear the common ground between it. And then as I started to study music, when I, you know, got to college and took a lot of music courses and 
had friends that turned me on to Afrobeat, to Afro-Peruvian music, and I started to Afro-Caribbean music, see the, definitely understand the common ground between everything, and especially particularly the the music that has African rhythms at its core, which is a, a large part of Western pop music, yes, but like non-Western classical music, a lot of music is really African and rhythm roots, and I, you start to kind of see the connection, and I think the easiest example that I always tell people is the what they call the Bo Diddley beat the classic like dun, 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 that Bo Diddley song is basically just a clave this is a clave which, which would connect it immediately if you were a DJ to any song that has a clave like that, which is a, could be a million songs. So I, I, that's why I really enjoy DJing and watching DJs, is that, is that they, a good DJ does that, it fuses all these worlds together. And I think without sounding too hokey, you know, again, this is me starting to get old and conceptual, like my, my art teachers were. Uh, <laughs> I think it shows you how much more we have in common as people. other thing when you're talking about this musical DNA that you're talking about, right? The other thing that fascinates me about Texas and Austin and all the musicians that are coming from there, because I'm, I'm Chicano from California, right? The fact of the existence of Texas R&B, that's a standalone, right? R&B from all over the country, but the Texas R&B has a different aspect to it. And I was a big fan and still am a big fan of the Latin Shade of Texas Soul album that you worked on. about how that Texas soul came out of the ground there, came out of the air. I used to be in a band called Grupo Fantasma. I was with them for 13 years, and we were, you know, mostly kids from South Texas that were, again, grew up on the same music that I did. You know, they were listening to Metallica or Tribe Called Quest or whatever it was that was popular at the time. But then we started to play cumbias, and we started to take everything we knew about American music and try to, like, you know, not fuse it, but sort of have that play everything, all the cumbias and everything that we were playing through that filter of what we grew up with. And I remember meeting Ruben Ramos, an incredible, you know, legendary musician from and talking to him early on in a on a group old thing that we did for TV. And he was talking about how they grew up on 
you know, R&B and rock and roll. And then I started to find out more about, you know, Sonny and the Sunliners and, and little Joey La Familia and all them. And I realized that, like, we weren't the first, you know, Mexican-American kids to be influenced by American music and then in turn bring that influence into what we were doing. So I started to collect a lot of those early records. This was a long time ago. And started to always want to connect those dots from that generation to our generation. And, and I, you know, I had a couple of conversations with, you know, with Ruben, with Little Joe, and kind of explained that to them, how much they opened the doors for doing that. So with some friends who were amazing music historians and educators and DJs went and, you know, visited and learned a lot in San Antonio about how that all happened, you know, that you had basically black music coming to San Antonio, Texas through the army bases and you had this proximity to the Mexican border, so the horn sections suddenly sounded less like Motown or Stax, but actually sounded more like mariachi horns. You know, so it was soul and R&B music, but it sounded like a little bit like Mexico a few hours away, so. I started to be just super fascinated with all that, and I think that all felt like making a documentary, learning about my own DNA of what it is that, that attracts me to that, you know. So I just love the combination of things like that because it was some of the most unique soul music and coming out of the U.S. because of that, you know, that was only happening here. I mean, you can argue California, but I think California opens another can of worms of that was more of this Afro-Cuban you know, with kind of the, with, you know, Santana and everything before that, that was kind of a different thing. Similar idea, but not in the way we're talking about, you know. You know, years ago, I had uh, an instructor at Fresno State who ended up getting his uh, PhD at, at UT Austin, Dr. Manuel Peña, who gave a class on the music of Mexico and the Southwest and echoes exactly what you were talking about. It was the army. It was during the Second World War when the soldiers would go off to Europe from South Texas and go off and fight and then uh, be in the service with African-American servicemen from all over the United States and they absorbed that music those those horns that came back and that that fueled those bands that you mentioned Little Joe Sonny and Sunliners all of those all of that whole South Texas sound was based on this cultural mashup it's, it's amazing to me oh I love it that's the kind of stuff you know again that's because I have such a connection to things happening that way because of how I grew up I get obsessed with any time I hear of that you know and um 
and I could spend, you know, a lifetime studying how that happens around the world, really. But I, you know, I only have the time to learn about what happened regionally because it's so ingrained in me, you know. Um, I grew up two hours away from San Antonio, so that, that was fascinating to me. So, yeah, I love that. I love that. And again, I'm starting to realize, like, maybe that's my life work thesis is finding how we, we have more in common through music than, than people think. Do you feel like as you make music that has all of these influences and has all of this kind of history to it, is it something that as you discover it, you want to create something that reflects you and reflects kind of the intersection of all of the things that of where you grew up and who you are? Or is it that as you make that music, you then discover these things about yourself? It's been a little bit of both, you know, there have been things where I've discovered it, you know, like I said, you know, in my time with, uh, with Grupo Fantasma, that was me discovering it. Like that was me figuring out like, oh, why am I so into cumbias? And I was like, oh, because that reminds me of every like, you know, quinceanera or whatever party that I went to and danced. <laughs> Everybody, that's an instant dance party. And I still have days where I put on cumbia and I listen to, end up listening to cumbias all day because I'm like, it just feels so good to dance that music. So that was something I was more of discovering, and now I I find myself again uh, the uh, look at my soul album that we that Felix was mentioning. That was a little bit of me wanting to go back and learn. You know, I was that was me like researching and and kind of documenting, and uh, I that one felt like always felt like a documentary to me because I felt like I wanted to make it four or five albums long. I just at some points I had to stop and turn in an album, or they were gonna everybody was gonna be. The suits were gonna get upset, but I uh, no, I mean I I had very supportive uh, Nacional Records and Amazon Music got behind it, and I was just surprised that they and really honored that they listened to this concept I had. So you know I had to deliver an album, but mm. but that was just me like man I could I could just travel and learn about this and tell these stories you know if I with whatever platform I have. We'll be right back to this interview with Adrian Quesada. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Quicksilver Card. You don't need special gadgets to be a hero. With unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase everywhere, the Capital One Quicksilver Card makes you the hero of every purchase. Whether it's headphones, a lounge chair, or even a well-deserved massage, you're the hero. No fighting bad guys or parachuting out of buildings. Simple, isn't it? The Capital One Quicksilver Card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. And we're back with Adrian Quesada. What role does Austin itself play in all this? Because it's it, it's a very it's has a tradition of being a very musical town, right? What role does it play in your life and in your music? You know, I've spent more time in Austin than I spent in Laredo at this point. You know, because I left Laredo when I was eighteen, so Austin has been equally as important as Laredo. To me, I think Laredo, I speak about it more because it was really in my young formative years. But as a musician in my formative years, like, you know, that was all in Austin. I think there's a cult, a real culture here of people that truly, truly support and appreciate music. But the fact that there is something really good happening almost every night is amazing because I have been on tour. I've been in you name it and tried to find good live music on a Monday there's that part of it, and I think every, there's a real sense of community here where it's like a very, um, like everybody knows everybody, and everybody plays music together, and and everybody kind of is here to like lift each other up, and that's that's been amazing for my development as a musician is that to be in a town like this. I, I do look back and think sometimes I missed opportunities 
that friends were getting in New York and L.A., you know, where I'm like, well, that was, you know, something that I missed mm-hmm. out on because I was in, you know, down in Texas. But I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's been it's been amazing. And plus, I'm, you know, just an hour away from San Antonio, which we were speaking of earlier and a couple hours from Houston and, and Dallas. And there's a lot of incredible music coming out of Texas in general right now. And Austin in particular has always you know, put out some of some of my favorite music. And we we've always attracted the I think since Willie Nelson first came here, always attracted like kind of the weirdos. Like we kinda always a- attracted the kind of left of center people. This Will- Willie left Nashville to come here and fly his freak flag. And I think Austin's always been like that, that you can show up and kind of be yourself and, and everybody's accepting of that. The other thing that fascinates me about Austin Texas and the areas that you're talking about is the diversity of expression from Latino musicians or Tejano musicians or Mexicano musicians. I mean, just off the top of my head, you have a very certain distinct style. Somebody like Carrie Rodriguez has a very distinct style. Even Alejandro Escobedo, who is, you know, makes his home base from that area. It's all very different, but it's all part of the same big giant pot of Latino expression. And that's, I always appreciated that. Yeah, absolutely. There's something that ties us all together here. I think because it wasn't necessarily a huge city. And to show you how small of a town it is, I was in my backyard doing something and I heard Carrie's voice outside. I'm like, what's, and I walked outside and she was at my neighbor's house. I heard her actually say my name. She was like, yeah, I talked to Adrian and I opened the gate and was like, what? And she was like, oh my God, she almost had a heart attack. That's how that's how like this community is here and that I literally ran into Carrie Rodriguez. I don't know where she lives, you know. And she didn't know where I lived. So you had two albums out last year. Things are opening up in terms of performance and, and traveling around. What are you working on now? What's next? What's on your radar? At the moment, I'm back on all 12 burners, you know, at once. <laughs> so started uh, Boleros, Psicodélicos 2, you know, because it takes a while to wrangle something like that with so many people. So I, I just went ahead and I felt inspired and started the music part of it. Um, currently working on a couple of other projects that are still a little gumbo where I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it. So juggling a handful of things as always, that's just kind of how my brain works. Do you have a distinct line where there's a a split in your brain between producer and musician? Yeah, I've tried to be better about that. And I've tried to have that distinction between the technical side. Well, more with the engineering, I guess, in the studio, but like with the technical side of it versus the purely creative side. And I've tried to be better about that. And, you know, in my studio, I bring, I have an engineer. Now I used to like engineer and produce and do a lot of those things by myself. And now I have an amazing engineer here in the studio. He is able to handle that so that I could be more creative, you know, because there, it does start to get a little bit overwhelming. And to be able to separate that is, I think, really, really key for, anybody you know if when people can juggle that i think it's awesome but i think my my brain started to like short circuit but is there something that happens like for you in your life in a moment that you're like i don't know what it is but this is the thing i really need to be working on right now yeah it's hard because i want to do so many things that i've learned to budget my time and and 
stay on a path because one day I'm just like, I'll come in here and be like, I want to do everything on synthesizers and no more guitar. And then I hear something really cool on guitar where I'm like, oh man, I got to go play a guitar more. I really like to play guitar. So I have to stay focused. And I think because I've, I felt satisfied putting out two albums, I want to release so much music, but you know, there is the practical side of the business of, you know, how often you're supposed to put something out, how you're supposed to put something out. And um, right now I'm definitely uh, inspired by and trying, starting a little project of just kind of new sounds where I mean, I, I am working with a lot of synthesizers where I'm like this, I really want to, it's a challenge too, you know, I've played guitar for a long time and not that that's not challenging, but I, I would like to challenge myself and try to get better at certain things. I read this visual artist from Austin and she was talking about when she was in art school and she wanted to try a new direction or a new thing in her, with her art. She, her art teacher said, well, then you have to make 20 to actually break through and, and learn a new technique or something. So I kind of, I've, I've had that in my head now when I have one thing, I'm like, I have to make 20 of these and then, and then you kind of break through to something. That's my TED talk on art. I love that image of him working on 12 burners at the same time, right? <laughs> right? We really ran with that visual, and I could totally see it. Like, Felix, when we were talking about this interview and him as a producer and the way that he works, did I not say, like, this is exactly kind of how I envisioned him as an artist. I'm like, he's the guy who's running around with a million different ideas and projects in his brain, just trying to get them all out there. And he's always been like that. As we suggested at the start of the show with the different styles and different styles of music, I think that he's he's one of these guys that uh, he's content with where he is and he's always trying to get better. He's always producing good music. And I think the world just needs to know more about him and the stuff that he's done. But that's what happens with producers sometimes, you know? You don't really get to see these creatives on this side of the music of the industry because they're just always always operating in his in his spaceship room as we kind of saw it and he says that he could spend the rest of his life examining these cultural mashups and i think that, that if he did that at some point he would end up investigating himself because now he's part of that arc of these cultural mashups and what they've been able to do there in texas fascinating All Latinos, a production of NPR Music. Our editor is Hazel Sills. Our production assistant is Jerusalem Truth. Our interns are Pilar Galvan and Sofia Seidel. Our audio editor is Soraya Mohammed. And the person who keeps the trains running on time, Grace Chung. And of course, as always, thanks to the Jefe-in-Chief, Keith Jenkins, VP of Music and Visuals. I'm Felix Contreras. I'm Ana Maria Sayer. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.